On a hot summer day, our production intern Sasha Fower and I met up in front of the Lost and Found department at the entrance to the Savidor Merkaz train station in Tel Aviv. Alright guys, so uh, if you lost something in a train, uh, first of all you need to call the customer service. It's star 7557, I think so. I'm not sure, <laughs> because I'm just in the office. That just-in-the-office guy is 33-year-old Anton, Anton Fokarev. First of all, good morning, my name is Anton. I work in the rail station in the lost and found section. So welcome, guys. Anton invited us into his kingdom. This is where lost items from all 70 railway stations in Israel end up. It's a small and crowded trailer which, for some reason, Anton kept referring to as... The main warehouse. The main warehouse. Which is here. Yeah, you're in the main warehouse right now. That's the warehouse. Anton's originally from Russia. Came to here in the age of nine. Where are you from in Russia? Uh, it's called Ushtobe. It's a small town. It's not actually Russia. I'm, I'm telling Russia because everybody knows Russia. It's in Kazakhstan. It's a really small village in Kazakhstan. So I'm from there. But I speak Russian. So you're Kazaki. I'm Kazaki, but in Israel we're all Russians. <laughs> His family came to Israel in 1998. Here he learned Hebrew, went to school, graduated. After that I joined the army, you know, served the army and that's all. School, student, working. <laughs> and how long have you worked here, Anton? Uh, for uh, five years, almost five years. During that time, Anton has returned tens of thousands of lost items. He estimates it's about 1,500 items a month, which account for roughly a quarter of all items people forget on trains. And he simply loves his job. Listen, it's like a mission for us. It's like a service for the community. I'm actually thinking that I'm doing something good for the community. In fact, Anton's the most enthusiastic, intentional and satisfied lost and found worker I've ever heard of. I see people crying every day from happiness, from happiness of course. So uh, it's a mitzvah to return a rose. So I think I'm a tzaddik. I'm saving myself for heaven. <laughs> a place for <in> heaven. <laughs> Alright, uh, can I explain how it's working? Yeah. Uh, if you're losing something, there's a conductor on the train, right? Anton proceeded to describe the entire process. Photographs. We're, we're photographing every every item that you see here, have its own barcode, have its own photography. Which really does sound surprisingly intricate. So you can locate everything, we are working perfectly, I think so. If you're losing something and you can't locate it after one week or two weeks, don't lose your hope because you still can find it after one month. So uh, just have hope and, you know, and uh, patience. And what are some of the most common things that people lose on trains? Glasses. Glasses we get a lot. Uh, keys and uh, drugs. Drugs? Yeah, drugs. You mean like illegal drugs or medicine? Drugs. No, like illegal drugs. I see you have a stack of ultra-orthodox black hats over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a new line, the Jerusalem station. There's a lot of guys that visiting Tel Aviv, Jerusalem. So, you know, they're not uh, really used to ride the train. So they put their hat on, on the top of the shell. But uh, our luck that almost all the guys have their phone number and their name inside the hat so we can uh, contact them. Oh, really? Yeah. Because otherwise it would be hard to tell which hat is which. Yeah, they all sure. look pretty yeah, much yeah. the same. This hat is, is worth like 1,000 shekels. So it's not a cheap thing. Really? Yeah. <laughs> 
Wow, so people must be very happy when you call them. Sure. And what are some of the strangest things that people have lost on trains? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question because we have really weird things like a glass eye, you know. A glass eye? Glass eye. So were you able to return the... <laughs> yeah, yeah. What happened? The guy came and said, I lost my eye? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was in a black box. He was, uh, you know, uh, with like a pirate with a uh, eye strip. So... Like an eye patch, like Moshe Dayan? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and did you, did he have to prove that the eye was his? <laughs> no, actually not, because the first proof that you see, he don't have an eye. <laughs> What other unusual finds ended up in Anton's hands, you wonder? Well, hands? Once upon a time, like a year ago, we got uh, a full of bags of plastic hands. Just the plastic hands. They was destined to go to the children without no hands. Or Anton's personal favorite. Walkers. Why? Why it's strange, man? Because if you have walkers and you're leaving it in a train and you walk out of the train, so, you know... <laughs> here we would notice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are you yourself um, organized? Do you not lose things very no, easily? No, I'm really very, very organized. As you can see my desk, everything is tick-tock on the places. It's uh, I'm very organized. So you've never lost anything on a train? Uh, on a train, uh, actually, I, I lost my chain. I never found it. <laughs> hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by Tablet Magazine and the Jerusalem Foundation. Our episode today, Lost and Found Part 1, is the first of two episodes that explore what it is that we find when we lose things and what we lose when we find them. All right, let's dive right into today's lost and found story. It's a story about friendship, perseverance, tradition, and renewal. But it's also a story about a mikveh, a Jewish ritual purification bath. Here's Skylar Inman with Hot Tub Time Machine. Meet Anat and Steve. My name is Anat Harrell. I'm Steve Gray. 72-year-old Steve and 59-year-old Anat are neighbors. They both live in Hanaton, a picturesque little kibbutz in the Lower Galilee, not far from Nazareth. On paper, the two of them have a lot in common. They both made Aliyah from the United States, and they each began a second career as tour guides in midlife. But off paper, they're like oil and water. How would I describe Steve? First of all, I love him dearly. He's a really good friend. But at the same time, he and I are such opposites. He's like a cynic. He reminds me of my father. Oh, my gosh. And that is a tour de force, kind of this ball of energy that, like, explodes in all different directions and at all different times. And when I come up with, oh, Steve, we got to do this. Think about this. He says, it's never going to work. Don't even think about it. And that says, you know, Think positive, the universe is going to be behind us. He's always like, I don't know. Even as tour guides, I would imagine, they're mismatched. While Anat gets easily swept up in the excitement of a tale, Steve likes to stay close to the facts. Did you tell her why they, it was moved? Uh, it's partly urban legend, so I don't <gasps> want to... Uh, oh, but you know, it's all about stories, right? Okay, so... <laughs> Hanging out with them feels a bit like watching a buddy film. One's high, the other's low. One's sure, the other's hesitant. One says something, the other contradicts it. But despite, or come to think of it, maybe because of this dynamic, Steve and Anat are more than just neighbors. They're good friends. And at the center of their friendship is the fact that they're both crazy about their kibbutz. 
I moved here straight from the airport. The people who are living here are all kind of people who have been drawn to, you know, this magnet of Hanaton that says, okay, we're here to do something different. Amongst Hanaton's population of just under a thousand, there are native-born Israelis and new immigrants, liberal left-wingers and hawkish right-wingers, scientists, journalists, educators, tour guides, and most notably, families who practice very different forms of Judaism, from orthodoxy to atheism, all living side by side. That's what Hanaton is, an egalitarian, multi-denominational, socialist, yet capitalist, uh, intentional community with 11 rabbis and one synagogue. You come and you live a lifestyle that is Jewish and religious and completely open and accepting of the fact that there are other ways to practice Jewish tradition aside from yours, and you are willing to compromise and live together. In Israel, religious life is dominated by the Rabbanut, the Orthodox rabbinate. There is, at least officially, really only one way to be Jewish. And as Stephen Anat, in A Rare Moment of Harmony, explained it to me, Hanaton wants to set an example of what Judaism in Israel could look like if that weren't the case. If you're not willing to compromise, then this is not the place for you. The kibbutz itself, as an example, does not allow for vehicular traffic on Shabbat. We close off the gates and there's no, no cars or cell phones in public. But in the privacy of their homes, of course, everyone does whatever they want. There's a real feeling of respect, of pluralism, not as a slogan, but as a way of life. Other than that, however, there's not a ton that sets the place apart from other kibbutzim in the area. It's lush, quiet, spacious, full of fragrant rosemary bushes lining the sidewalks and big trees dropping pomegranates and carob pods. It's a village in the bucolic Lower Galilee, on top of a hill, very green, overlooking a nice reservoir. There are only like two or three roads where cars drive and we have pathways. It's a typical kibbutz. And really, before COVID hit in the spring of 2020, life in Hanaton was pretty idyllic. The tourism business was booming. Things were going so well, and I had tours lined up all the way to December, you know. And then the dominoes started to fall. Things started to cancel, 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 cancel. So first it was March, and then it was April and May. Too bad, because April and May were nice and strong. And then June starts to cancel. And then all of a sudden it like came to a dead stop. It was like nothing. Zero. I'm sitting home thinking, this too shall pass, you know. We got through Pharaoh and we'll get through this as well. Like many tight-knit communities, Hanaton and Stephen and Nat had to grapple with their new COVID lives. Hanaton had always been calm and peaceful, but now, now it was too calm and peaceful. It was quiet. There were no group activities that we were doing together, which was a big change. It had been a long time since either of them had this much time on their hands, and frankly, they were both getting antsy. I said, whoa, I've got to do something. So they came up with a plan, something that would get them off their couches and back into the field, or at least as close to it as they could get, given the lack of tourism. Steve and I decided that it'd be fun to participate in some kind of archaeological excavation. They signed up to volunteer in what's called a chafirat hatzala, or a salvage dig. Basically, because Israel is such an archaeologically rich place, there's a law that requires construction projects to ensure that in the process of building new stuff, homes, hospitals, freeways, they don't damage priceless old stuff hidden underneath. A massive new freeway interchange was being built right near Hanaton, 
And following procedure, the contractors called in archaeologists from Israel's Antiquities Authority to dig. And those archaeologists needed extra hands, so they put out a call for amateur volunteer diggers to come play Indiana Jones for a few days. The goal, Stephen and Ott were told in a very brief orientation, was to collect, catalog, and, if possible, save anything they found, from Byzantine coins and Roman glass beads, all the way to Canaanite figurines and prehistoric spearheads. The beauty of it, and the romance, really, is that you never know what you're going to unearth. I was hoping to find, like, a well-preserved oil lamp or some sort of a ceramic vessel of some sort. It's all a matter of luck. You could be on a team that uncovers something that totally rewrites history. Or, more likely, you could sift through dirt and find nothing. You just never know. Stephen and Ott were sent to two separate digs. Knowing them, I can imagine that each one was hoping to come home with a cooler discovery than the other. Steve's site was just down the road from Khanaton, at the base of a new freeway overpass. As soon as he arrived, he was handed a shovel, given surprisingly minimal instructions, and essentially told to have at it. Most of the work is done on your knees, because you don't want to, like, take a pick to a thing and break, you know, the last remnants of the Ten Commandments, right? So you have to be a little bit careful. After the initial excitement wore off, monotony set in. For the most part, the dig wasn't quite as romantic as the movies might have you believe. Other than a few pottery shards here and there, there was... Nothing earth-shattering. Until, that is, the third day, when Steve and his supervisors uncovered something amazing. And he calls me, he says, you're not going to believe this, but I think we found a mikveh. And I went, what? A mikveh. An ancient Jewish purification bath. Now, Steve may have called a knot with that news, at least partially, to boast and rub it in. But he also called for another, more sincere reason. See, to understand why discovering a mikveh just down the road from their kibbutz was so gobsmacking to both Steve and Nat, I actually need to introduce you to a third person who lives in Khanaton. So I am Rabbi Chaviva Ner David. Chaviva is one of Khanaton's 11 rabbis and runs the community's mikveh. She took me to see it. Okay, so we're standing at the front door of the mikveh at Kibbutz Khanaton. This is the mikveh. We step in. The mikveh itself sort of looks like a hot tub in a not-so-fancy spa. Seven sand-colored stone steps descend into a small pool of water. There's a handrail on one side and some laminated prayer cards on a shelf, for anyone who doesn't know the blessings by heart. All pretty standard. But there's one thing about Khanaton's mikveh that isn't standard at all. This is the only mikveh in Israel that's open to anyone who wants to immerse whenever, however they want to immerse. And it's not run by or monopolized by the Orthodox Israeli rabbinate, which the other mikveh in Israel are. That means that in this mikveh, the rabbinate doesn't decide who can immerse or when they can immerse or how they can immerse. Here, Anyone can perform the ritual in whatever way feels meaningful to them. In the past 20 years or so, there's been this movement to take back mikveh. Hanaton's mikveh stands, therefore, at the forefront of the kibbutz's battle to advance Jewish pluralism in Israel. People from all over the country come here, for all kinds of reasons. To mark major milestones, to sanctify changes in their lives, to convert, or even just to meditate or reflect. I like to think of it as the ritual in Judaism that's both about transition and change, and it can also be about finding your spiritual center and like the piece of you that doesn't change. 
I think mikvehs are amazing. Unsurprisingly, Anat, who is on the kibbutz's mikveh committee, is really enthusiastic about the whole thing. It's about life changes, life cycles, you know, because you are one person, and then after you immerse, you come out a different person. Also, unsurprisingly, Steve's a little more cool-headed about it. I'm not a mikvah person. But even he was ecstatic when he and his fellow diggers uncovered a 2,000-year-old mikvah just down the road. 2,000 years old. I mean, 2,000 years old, that's the heart of, like, the destruction of the Second Temple and King Herod. The presence of a mikveh here, the archaeologists said, proved that at this very spot, two millennia ago, there had been a Jewish settlement, probably an agricultural outpost. And while it would be a thrill for any amateur archaeologist to discover evidence of a 2,000-year-old village, to specifically find a mikveh felt like more than just any old archaeological find. It felt... Perhaps to a nut more than to Steve. Like the hands of fate had guided them to be the ones to discover it. But this triumphant rush was short-lived. The mikveh itself, it's not very rare. That's Dr. Kamal Sari, the archaeologist who oversees the Lower Galilee region for the Antiquities Authority. Remember, the reason Steve and the other diggers had been excavating to begin with was that this was going to be the site of a massive highway overpass. And the mikveh had the bad fortune of being smack in the middle of the planned road. This, Kamal told me, is not an uncommon occurrence. Uh, many times you can change the uh, way of the road. But not this time. We tried to make some changes in the planning of the road, but there was no way to change it. I won't go into the engineering technicalities, but believe me, despite a lot of goodwill on all sides, there was simply no way to alter the route of the freeway. A huge, weight-bearing concrete column needed to go directly on the spot where the mikveh was found, which meant that the archaeologists faced a real either-or decision. Either save the mikveh and halt the road's project entirely, causing, most likely, hundreds of millions of shekels of collateral damage, or else document the mikveh and then bulldoze it. Kamal told me that this sort of paradoxical situation in which archaeologists sign off on the destruction of ancient artifacts is more common than you might think. What to do in Israel, we know 20% of the land is archaeological site. Not everything, as a result, can be saved. Otherwise, there simply wouldn't be enough room to build new things. Whatever can be extracted from a site is. But larger finds, foundations of homes, mikvehs, ancient roads, are evaluated on a case-by-case basis. Whether the Antiquities Authority chooses to preserve or destroy an artifact usually comes down to the question of how rare or historically significant it is. And as much as it pains him to say goodbye to any piece of history, Kamal knew that this case was a no-brainer. The 2,000-year-old mikveh Steve discovered simply wasn't unique enough. We have some in the Galilee and in all the country. But Anat, of course, didn't agree. For her, this was more than rare. This was a once-in-a-lifetime find. So what if it wasn't the only ancient mikveh? It was a direct link between Hanaton's pluralistic way of life and Jewish rituals from thousands of years ago. Wasn't that connection between then and now worth something? Perhaps, but apparently not enough to halt a national infrastructure project. Shortly after its discovery, once the mikveh was studied, measured, and recorded, Kamal, the regional archaeologist, gave the contractors the green light to resume construction. But before the heavy machinery arrived, 
the Antiquities Authority organized a tour of the site for anyone who wanted to see the newly discovered mikveh for the very last time. And Anat seized the opportunity. You know, when people started to disperse, I went up to him and I said, listen, I said, you know, I'm here from Hanaton and, you know, I'm in the mikveh committee. And that's when I said, wouldn't it be amazing if we can build a replica? Now, Kamal might have been forced into a position of brutal pragmatism, but that didn't mean he wanted the mikveh to be destroyed. And he says, why replica? Excavate it out and transfer the whole thing. I said, what? He says, yeah. Of course, it's much easier to make a copy. It's much cheaper. But if you want really to feel the touch of the past of the archaeology, you must show the original one. That little spark of an idea was all Anna needed. She felt electrified. What an opportunity. What an opportunity to preserve something that is so closely connected to our tradition. But, she asked Kamal, was that even possible? I said, who would do it? He says, I don't know, find someone. And I said, oh my gosh, this has got to, I, yeah. I was like, sold. I said, okay, we've got to do this. Anat immediately took out her cell and called Steve. Nassif goes, I don't know, I don't know. You know, that's crazy. I mean, like, that's ridiculous. There's no way that that's going to happen. He said, Steve, stop it. Let's be positive. Except, well, they needed more than just positivity. Construction was due to pulverize the area in just a few days. So within that time frame, they would need to raise the funds and organize the entire removal effort. They obviously had no idea what moving a mikveh would cost, but they soon found out. So uh, the, the magic number, it's probably about $75,000. They needed to raise $75,000. Anat, characteristically, was unfazed. It's going to be fine. We're going to do this. But even she knew that it would take more than just a few days to raise the money. So they appealed to the Rhodes Authority, the body in charge of the construction, for a small extension. Just enough time to try and raise the funds. The engineering manager in charge of the project, Yitzhaki Tischler, generously agreed. I told him you have three weeks. Three weeks. That was a start. But how on earth were they going to raise $75,000 in three weeks? Especially now, during COVID, when so many people were, like Stephen and Nat themselves, out of work. I'm the crazy enthusiastic one. I'm the very positive one that keeps telling Steve it's going to work out. It's fine. Just send positive vibes into the universe. They set up a donation page. But in order to crowdfund that much money at a time when the entire world was completely focused on the pandemic, they needed media attention. And it just so happens that the very next day, the very next morning, I get a phone call from ILTV. The Tel Aviv-based news station was looking to fill a few minutes in the following day's broadcast and wanted to know if Anat, one of their go-to sources, had heard of anything interesting going on in the Galilee. And I said, ah, funny you should ask. Now, Israel might be tiny geographically, but in almost every inch of sand, there's a story. And we see it often when building new sites in the country because first the ground needs to be cleared and it's often that something remarkable is uncovered in the process. And tell us, what did the workers find? So what happened was they came upon an amazing discovery. They found a mikveh, which is a ritual immersion pool. We are talking 2,000 years ago. After the broadcast, donations began to trickle in from Israel, the U.S., Canada, and elsewhere. But the amounts were small 
Steve knew that they would need lots of $25 donations to reach their goal. So he and Anat threw themselves into full-on PR mode. They wrote to journalists, bloggers, archaeology professors, and fellow tour guides. That, incidentally, is also when we first heard of the story. There were a few media mentions, and donations kept coming in. But before they knew it, Itzhaki's three-week deadline had come and gone. Steve begged him for just one more day. Then another and then another. Though each delay cost him a lot of money, Yitzhaki reluctantly caved. But Stephen and Anat knew it was just a matter of time before he lost his patience. They promised him that they were on the verge of a solution. But at any moment, they feared, the Rhodes Authority could have a change of heart and bulldoze the whole thing. We'll be right back. And now, back to our episode. As Stephen and Anat's PR efforts started to pay off, stories began to appear in the Israeli press about a scrappy group of kibbutzniks who were trying to save a piece of ancient history. And if Stephen and Anat were the heroes of that story, it followed that Itzhaki, the manager of the construction project, was its villain. It was a pretty classic narrative, Small-town heroes facing off against the big and evil Rhodes Corporation. But, it turns out, this whole hero-villain thing wasn't exactly the truth. Here's Itzhaki. The day after I got this permission from the authority, I could tell the contractor, start digging. In that case, Skyler asked him, why didn't he? Why was he even entertaining Stephen and Anat's crusade to save the mikveh? You have to look beyond, okay? You have this flexibility. We said, okay, how much time that we have that we can play with? All right, back to Skylar. Yitzhaki was looking beyond, trying to be flexible. In other words, he didn't want to be the big bad wolf from the Three Little Pigs. In fact, he told me he himself thought the mikveh was really cool. But as much as Yitzhaki didn't want to huff or to puff or to blow the mikveh down, We are holding our breath, but we cannot hold it anymore. Ultimately, it wasn't only up to him. After all, Yitzhaki had bosses too, and the Rhodes Authority couldn't afford to wait around forever. I'm living on borrowed time. I'm done with the time. By the time Steve and I went to go see the ancient mikveh in mid-July, they were, in fact, three weeks past Yitzhaki's original deadline. Pessimistic Steve fully expected to arrive one morning and see tractors working. But at least on that day, it was still there intact and sitting right where they'd found it, next to the unfinished overpass. So this is the dig site. Okay, so this is the dig site here. To be honest, it was hard for me to tell at first what we were looking at. Yeah, can you describe what we're seeing here? So what we have here is a, I mean, like most archaeological sites, it's a lot of rocks. A lot of rocks. Brown, dusty limestone rocks that all kind of blended into one another. To my untrained eye, the ancient mikveh looked kind of like a stone pit with seven steps descending down into the bedrock. Sort of an ancient jacuzzi. Back at his home on the kibbutz, I asked Steve for the hard truth. How much of the $75,000 had they actually raised? We've raised $7,000. $7,000. They still had $68,000 to go. To me, it was starting to feel increasingly unlikely that small, personal donations would be enough to save the mikveh. 
Yet, at this point, even Steve seemed unwilling to give up hope. What do you think the chances are that you guys will be able to pull it off? Steve nervously tapped his fingers on the table. Uh, I'd say at this point it's still 50-50. 50-50? What was going on here? Had Steve become a nut? They were almost a month past their fundraising deadline and had raised only about a tenth of their goal. My experience in fundraising, and I have some experience in fundraising, is that it takes time to develop donors. Then, thankfully, he returned to his realistic self. And that's the one thing we don't have, is time. It didn't take long for Anat and Steve to face reality. They understood that in order for them to succeed, they needed someone with deep pockets to step in and cough up the big bucks. Otherwise, this 2,000-year-old mikveh would become history very soon. I wondered aloud whether they thought that maybe... Given everything else going on in the world, it was going to be hard to gather major support for something as niche as relocating an ancient mikveh. Does it ever feel kind of esoteric to you guys that you're trying to move a hole in the ground from one place to another? I think about it a lot. I think about that a lot. So at the end of the day, where people are, you know, in a healthcare crisis and don't have a job and don't eat, and we're trying to get money to move a hole from one place to another place, to put it in really, you know, non-spiritual terms is kind of chutzpahdik, okay? I mean, you know, that's crazy. Crazy, perhaps, but also no reason to stop trying. Anat still fantasized that the ancient mikveh would be hoisted out of the ground, moved to Hanaton, and ceremoniously placed next to Rabbi Chaviva's pluralistic one. We have such a great mikveh ourselves, and we thought, you know what? That's who we are. Renew the old and sanctify the new. That's the motto of Hanaton. Steve remained, as always, a bit more skeptical, but was, in every way, all in on this mission. And the more I got to know him, the more I couldn't help but wonder why. After all, Steve knew and articulated many times that nothing crazy would happen if they failed. I mean, you heard him. He's not even a mikveh person. But still. To be able to bring the mikveh here and to put it next to the operating existing mikveh that is special in and of its own right is kind of like the perfect bookends to a story that, uh, you know, that resonates for all the people here on the kibbutz. To me, at least, it seemed as if during this crummy, no good disaster of a year, Steve, like a lot of us really, needed a story with a happy ending. And he was willing to do almost anything to find it. That happy ending, however, appeared to be more and more out of reach. That week, Itzhaki gave Team Hanaton one more extension. But this one, he made it very clear, would be the absolute last. I wrote them a letter uh, two or three days ago that uh, we have two weeks. In two weeks' time, he clarified, the site will be uh, completely excavated, ruined, demolished. This meant that Steve and Anat had until the morning of August 9th to raise the remaining funds. The race was on. I asked them to send me daily updates on WhatsApp. Skylar, just want to check in and give you the update for Sunday, August 2nd. So it's August 2nd. Uh, We have one week to go. We've been running around, running around, trying to get more money. And then we got word that the appeal for additional funding fell through, which kind of threw us for a loop. Not one of our best days. We kind of ended the day with, you know, some real pessimism. We don't want to give up yet, but it's not looking good. Not looking good. Steve and I had a meeting this morning. We gathered around my kitchen table. We're 
over 185 donors already. I don't want to have to return all the money to everybody, but we may have no choice. Uh, stories don't always have a happy ending. Uh, time is definitely running out. What we're trying to get is not money from the Antiquities Authority, because I know, we know, they don't have any, but the head of the Antiquities Authority has the ear of very, very high people in the Prime Minister's office. So we're hoping that he can put the good word in. Tuesday morning, no good news out of Jerusalem. Emotionally, it's been a very, uh, very difficult 24 hours, lots of ups and downs, mostly downs. We are, uh, need about 120,000 shekels, which is $40,000. But for the big departments, it's really not that much. I think the idea of extracting the mikvah in its entirety from its place looks like it's a bridge too far. So we're starting to think of other, other plans. One crazy idea I had was Sunday, we'll just bring water to the place before they destroy it do a whole ceremony of one last dip in the mikvah and uh, uh, film it and then say goodbye in a nice, uh, in a nice spiritual way. These messages were kind of a daily downer. But then all of a sudden, I received this. Hey, Skylar. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We are so excited. This morning, I got a message from the head of the Antiquities Authority. And he said, call me in the morning. We'll talk about how I can help. I called him, explained the situation. I said to him, listen, we need this done by next Sunday. Next Sunday is August 9th. He said, okay, hang up. Let me talk to them again. He called them again, called me back and he said, it's done. It's funded. I can't believe it. Oh my God. What a day. What a day. I screamed. Oh my gosh. I jumped up to the ceiling. I said, what? Frankly, I was shocked that this came through and the things came together just in time. Now I have to tell uh, Yitzhaki that uh, he may have to delay his project. Unless something goes wrong, and something will go wrong, but hopefully it won't be catastrophic, uh, we're on our way. Okay, it's August 9th. Sunday afternoon and I'm here at the site of the mikvah uh, and happy to report that nothing is happening. The site itself which is becoming increasingly familiar to me looks like it's crying out for uh, for help and uh, from what I can say now help is on the way. The Prime Minister's office came through at the very last minute and saved the day. But until the mikveh was actually out of the ground, nothing felt certain, especially not to Steve. Weeks passed, and nothing happened. But then, on September 10th, the extraction began. Today, we start to cut the, the surface of the bedrock with a special diamond saw. That's Moishlao. I'm the project contactor. I'm from uh, Herod Engineering Solution Company. Herod Engineering Solution Company. As in King Herod, the great Second Temple period ruler who reigned during the very time this mikveh was built. Symbolism, Anat pointed out with a smile, was everywhere. How long do you think it'll take? I hope to finish all the project in um, 12 uh, workdays. 12 workdays? Yeah. All I could think about was poor, long-suffering Yitzhaki, whose project, already three months delayed, 
would now be postponed by another two weeks. 12 days, how does Yitzhaki feel about that? Yitzhaki is uh, pulling his hair out, but... Um, is he on strike? Is he not no, coming I mean, to no, work anymore? <laughs> Meanwhile, over near the mikveh, the enormous circular diamond saws began to spin. Moish's men worked day and night, and it ended up taking just 11 workdays to cut through the bedrock and prepare the mikveh for its removal. On September 29th, the day after Yom Kippur, everyone, archaeologists, engineers, contractors, local residents, gathered for the big day. The mikveh itself was packed with polyurethane foam and wooden planks and encased in a giant iron cage, an enormous 60-ton package ready to be taken down the road to its new home. Steve and Anat milled about excitedly, smiling and greeting people like a bride and groom on their wedding day. Finally, it was go time. As long as he doesn't drop it, you know, this entire time I've been expecting this thing to end in tragedy. So, you know, so far I've been, I've been pleasantly surprised. We'll see if my luck holds out. Seconds away from the, from the moment, from liftoff, here they go. As the crane began to heave the mikveh up off the ground, the heavy-duty chains were pulled taut. Those are the loud bangs you just heard. We weren't sure at first what those sounds meant, but one of the archaeologists assured us that it was actually totally normal. And sure enough, the mikveh slowly lifted off. Here it goes. Saw our first movement. Dangling high above the ground, wrapped in a white plastic tarp and suspended from the crane, the mikveh kind of looked like a baby being carried by a giant stork. And slowly, excruciatingly slowly, the crane set it down on the back of a semi-trailer. Step one was done. Anat was practically in tears. My ancestors would be so proud. <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. These ancestors of my people built this hole in the rock so they can fulfill rituals from the Torah. And they did the same things we do today, 2,000 years. It's crazy. We all got in our cars and accompanied the truck on its five-minute drive down the road to Hanaton. The place looked as if it were a national holiday. Kids, parents, grandparents, everyone was outside, many of them holding handmade signs welcoming the mikveh. Shalom. Moish, the manager from Herod Engineering, started giving an impromptu lesson to the children of the kibbutz about the mikveh. The kids, of course, were losing their minds over the crane. Oh my god. <laughs> After securing the crane and preparing it to lift the mikveh off the truck, it was time for step two of the move. And that's when I caught sight of a familiar face in the crowd, Yitzhaki, dressed in an army uniform. As it turned out, he was in the middle of reserve duty and had asked for a few hours off to come and see the big move. It is exciting. I hope you'll celebrate somehow. Um... I, I will celebrate when I see the part of the bridge that is still on hold. Fair enough. But as the crane raised the mikveh high off the ground for the second time that day, even pragmatic Yitzhaki seemed to be excited. The crowd watched the mikveh rise up, higher and higher, and then slowly be lowered back down into a big, freshly dug hole. Hey, 
Somehow, after headaches, heartbreaks, and months of work, they had done it. They had achieved what sounds like the punchline of a joke or a Helm story. They had moved a hole in the ground from one place to another. They had saved this ancient ritual bath that, in the end, was much more than just rocks and plaster. It was a 2,000-year-old symbol. For some people, like Anat, it was a symbol of continuity and history and belonging. For others, the Steves of the world, it was proof of the fact that even when everything else in the world seems to be out of control, some things, even crazy things, are possible if you pour your heart into them. I'm still, I keep pinching myself. Uh, you guys did it. I was telling my uh, granddaughter, I said, what do we learn from this? Like, what lessons come out of this? It's the crazy people who make things happen. You can do amazing things. And, uh, you literally move earth. You can move right, move earth, move mountains or, or holes. A little over a month after the move, on November 5th, the first rains of the season arrived at Kibbutz Hanaton. Without even calling each other, Anat and Steve ran out of their respective homes and dashed to the exact same place, the mikveh. When they got there, they peered inside, and sure enough, they saw exactly what they were hoping to see. It rained today, and uh, I can see that there's water here in the, in the mikveh. This is amazing! Look! For the first time in centuries, rainwater was gathering in the mikveh. Amen. What an honor. Skylar Inman. Mechlaf Yiftach El, the new interchange that was built on the site of the mikveh, recently opened up for traffic. Zev Levi scored and sound designed this episode, with music from Blue Dot Sessions. Sela Weisblum mixed it all up. Thanks to Sasha Foer, Wayne Hoffman, Esther Werdiger, Sheila Lambert, Erica Frederick, Jeff Fag, and Joy Levitt. You can catch up on all our past episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Lastly, if you're interested in sponsoring episodes of Israel Story, email us at sponsor at israelstory.org. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Yoshi Fields, Skylar Inman, Nomi Schneider, Adina Karpuch, Ellie Blyer, Sharon Rappaport, and Rotem Tzin. Sonia Applebaum, Laura Kapelyushnik, Tanya Huyard, and Matthew Littman are wonderful production interns. Jeff Umbro and Jesse Adler from the Podglomerate are our marketing team. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back next time with the second half of our Lost and Found project. So till then, try to find something you've lost. Shalom Shalom, and yalla bye. הלכתי אל בורות המים בדרכי מדבר בארץ לא זרועה מאהבתי שכחתי עיר ופייט ובעקבותיך בנהייה 
שמעתי נתנה לי צל בקיץ ובסערת החול הנוראה. רק אהבתי בנתה לי עיר ובית, היא חיי והיא מותי מדי שעה. Uh-huh. 